0: Exploring interesting topics that impact our lives.
1: And fascinating ideas that get us thinking. I'm Kyle. And I'm Kelly.
0: And this is Things To Think On. So, Seinfeld is one of my favorite TV shows of all time, and I think it's fair to say it's one of our favorite TV shows. George Costanza, throughout the series, he has many, I think, recurring uh, jokes or, or themes or things that he does. And one of them that starts very early on is the idea that we're living in a society. And one of the very first episodes, or one of the very early episodes, they're in a uh, Chinese restaurant, and he's waiting for a telephone and as he's standing there uh, kind of waiting in line for the chance to use the telephone a woman comes up and basically as soon as it's free steps ahead of him and starts using it and he of course gets very very upset as george costanza generally does and tells her that he was he's been waiting in line And he he needs to use that phone for a very urgent phone call. This, of course, was in the days before everybody was carrying cell phones and, and things like that. And so it was the only phone that they could use for those unfamiliar with the idea that everybody wasn't carrying a cell phone and that a restaurant would only have a single phone for somebody to use. But Anyway, the lady looks at him and says something along the lines of, well, if You know, you had been waiting or if it was your turn, then you would have the phone, wouldn't you? And he turns away absolutely furious and red faced and clenches his fists and grits his teeth and shouts, we're living in a society where we should act civilized. That's kind of the the beginning of a a few times when he kind of repeats that mantra. Another time later, he asks somebody, I I believe they're in an airport or a train station or something like that. And he asks somebody uh, what time it was. The gentleman points to a clock in the distance and tells him he can go look at the time over there. And he is a little bit befuddled and says, you're, but you're wearing a watch. You know, Can you just tell me what time it, time it is? Again, this is in the days before everybody was carrying a cell phone, which is a little bit hard for probably all of us to imagine not being able to know what time it was. But the the gentleman doesn't want to look at his wrist and tell him what time it is. You know, again, points him towards the clock on the on the wall in the distance. And George tries to grab his wrist just to see what time it is. And, and the man jerks away and, and walks off. And George screams after him, we're living in a society. We should act like civilized people. And that continues to kind of come to my mind as we're in this state right now of uh, living through COVID nineteen, and the kind of the topic of today being wearing masks in public, and how it's become such a controversial subject and a hot topic, uh, is really interesting and a little bit befuddling because the fact is that we are in fact living in a society, and we should be acting like civilized people. And how that has become such a charged topic is really interesting and really fascinating. So that's what we'll be talking a little bit about is masks and society. So with that...
1: Why don't we talk a little bit about what makes up a society and why we might be expected to have certain rules to govern society and expectations. They may not be laws, they may not be mandated, but they're still important.
0: So I have kind of this framework that I've been working out in my mind. And I'm obviously no sociologist or social theorist. You're laughing, that's certainly the case. Well, I'm
1: laughing because what is a social theorist anyway? Is it not someone that just theorizes (laughs) about social things?
0: (laughs) I guess in that case. uh, Well, I'm I'm sure that there are those who have done much more theorizing and much more sociologizing. (laughs) So I will defer to those much more immersed in it than me.
1: Experts.
0: Yes. But as I, I think about it, um, the first thing I kind of go back to is this idea of, I read an article, um, I think it was a while ago, and I I can't even recall exact the exact article, but somebody had asked Margaret Mead, kind of the foundations or the the very beginnings of uh, civilization or, or society, what were those? And she responded uh, something along the lines of the very first signs of that were the healing of a broken bone and the idea that, uh, you know, somebody wasn't just left to fend for themselves or die because they couldn't take care of themselves, and that that was one of the very first signs of early society and early civilization, because that sort of thing prior to that would have meant certain death, not being able to, to hunt or get food, and... That for me kind of makes up the the basis of um, what I kind of think of as social foundations, and that's kind of at the core of my beginning theory is this idea of at its heart, you know, we have these social foundations or social principles that kind of govern us taking care of each other and taking care of our very core needs, and at at its heart, I kind of think of that as the immediate group around us whether that's family or um, our very very local community that's kind of the foundational group that i think of and then kind of going out from there i think of it as an interaction between families or tribes or communities and that being kind of governed by social norms or traditions so we go kind of from like social foundations to social norms As we kind of expand out our group, expand out this circle, and then going from there out into where I think we kind of need to be governed by more of what Hobbes referred to as like a social contract. So once we get out beyond our communities interacting, so, you know, various communities interacting between each other, far more distance and far more complex groups and communities having to have some sort of uh social contract where we it's not just norms and traditions but actual government or something to that effect where you know we give up certain amounts of freedom in order to retain certain freedoms and that's kind of where the idea of a social contract so going from like social foundations to social norms to social contracts out as, as you know as society gets more complex so
1: yeah, That's what cool. you're describing is really like the breakdown, the, the difference between society and civilizations. Um, society would be that more local group, um, sharing cultures and thoughts and ideals. They're more your community members. Um, and then civilization is that larger scale where you're going to need more social contracts so you've got the societal norms within your society and then as you get bigger you may be talking about your country at that point then you're you're talking about a civilization right so uh society to me and you would really be you know on a much smaller scale it would be utah because that's the state where we're living in but obviously we live in the greater salt lake city area so that's our society and we have our certain social norms that are kind of expected due to the culture that we are surrounded in. And um, then when you get a little bit bigger, start thinking in terms of the greater civilization, that's where we start to think about social contracts. Bigger expectations may not necessarily be laws, but a lot of times they are and they're needed to uh, ensure that we're able to all work together smoothly. Society is cohesive and safe and we're giving up a little bit of freedom in order to enjoy more freedoms as a whole and more safety together.
0: So, with that, I think this idea of social norms is very intriguing because it kind of starts to get into the this topic and this idea of wearing masks. But I guess before we jump into that, you know, maybe we could touch on the idea of some social norms and some social traditions, what they are, why they're important, I guess, how they help us. And then we can kind of dive into the topic of masks a little. So for you, what are some social norms and why are they important?
1: Yeah, I think for me, it may even be a little bit different because I didn't grow up in the same region as you did you grew up here in utah and i grew up in southeast texas there's quite a few social norms where i grew up that are different than here one of the social norms down there i actually had to drop because it's Mm -hmm. not acceptable here and that was uh, when i'm speaking to anyone that i am unfamiliar with i would refer to them as sir or ma'am it's a sign of respect in southeast texas to do that and it's very much expected, especially if you're talking to someone that might be uh, more senior than you are. And so when I moved here, I was uh, I did that for years and more than once was met with some frustration that I did that. <laughs> <laughs> I think that um, when you're not used to that particular social norm, it could be misconstrued and that's what was happening. And they were thinking that I was uh, insinuating that they were old, by calling them it was usually ma'am that was more offensive so i learned that i needed to drop that particular social norm but there are other social norms that i grew up with that i think are still really acceptable everywhere i notice it more when i'm at home and that's kind of maybe more old-fashioned norms like uh, giving up your seat to someone who might need it more than you whether that's um, when you're in a waiting area or maybe you're in public transportation or something like that. It's not necessarily required. Obviously, no one's going to kick you out of your seat. You were there first. But if you see someone that needs it more than you, I think that it is a social norm to offer that seat to them. They may turn it down, but you should at least offer. That's something that I actually had a recent conversation with my son about. He took a seat away from his grandma And I said, you know, I think grandma probably needs to sit down more than you. And he said, why? And I said, well, you're, you're so young. You can stand for longer amounts of time than she can. I said, that's something that you should think about doing is maybe offering her that seat. And you can tell that it hadn't really occurred to him before. It's something that he will be learning as a social norm from us through our examples and through us teaching him. But It's still an important one. There are other ones too, like giving people their personal space, not being too close to them. You know, everyone has kind of this bubble of comfort. I think it's roughly about three feet in front of you, right? Where you don't really get into that personal space when you're conversing with them or, when you're just you know, out and about, when you're walking down the sidewalk, you try to give them that buffer zone where you're not in their personal space because that can make someone uncomfortable. Those are the kind of social norms that just come with experience and, and time. I don't think that's, again, something that's funny to observe in children. They don't really seem to grasp those as much. So it's obviously something that's learned through experience in society and with other people. It's something that kids learn as they spend more time with other folks. And it's pretty interesting to see that develop.
0: That one's pretty interesting too, because that one's also cultural. And so different cultures have different distances between them that are more appropriate, where certain cultures have certain distances that are more appropriate. So you might need to be a little bit further away in some cultures and some cultures are a little bit closer. And so just depending on what culture you're in, there might be some closer or further distances that are more appropriate. So that one I always have found fascinating, but you're right, how much space there is between people in kind of in conversation or in talking. And right now, that's an interesting one because, you know, six feet is kind of the distance that we have given that we're in the uh, COVID-19 social and physical distancing right now. But in, I guess, a more normal environment, you know, anywhere between, I think, two and four feet is like the appropriate distance.
1: Yeah, no, it's doubled. <laughs> <laughs> What are some other ones? What are some that you think of?
0: It's interesting because I've been thinking of some and there are probably lots and lots of them that we just don't even think of. But the idea of going to like the back of the line or the back of the queue is one that we probably just take for granted because that's what you should be doing. But it's so important because that's what, you know, keeps everybody in line and from rioting. If you were to try and move to the very front of the line at the supermarket or the movie theater or something like that, um, you know it would cause a lot of people to be very very upset because that's just uh, you know it's not something that is illegal or anything like that but it's very very against um, almost every social norm to move in front of people in any sort of queue or line and so that's something that would get people very very riled up and very upset for a lot of different reasons and so in order to wait your proper turn uh moving you know to the back of the line if you're, just arriving in any sort of uh, line or venue or anything like that. Also, where you walk on, you know, either whether it's on the side of a sidewalk or or in a hallway or anything like that, in order to keep just the traffic flowing uh, appropriately. I think for most areas and most places, you know, walking on the right-hand side, similar to where we drive in most countries... Uh, is a good way to kind of keep the traffic, especially foot traffic, flowing in the right direction. If you've ever tried to kind of walk on the opposite side, for whatever reason, uh, it tends to to disrupt the flow of foot traffic significantly. Again, not necessarily illegal or anything like that, but often goes very much against the flow and causes a lot of disruption to what would otherwise tend to be a very orderly flow. That might not be something that is particularly relevant where there's not a ton of people, but uh, you know if you've been ever been in in very crowded areas or walking in you know crowded streets or, or places like that, having a very good flow tends to keep things moving very nicely. And so when people kind of cut against the grain or or walk in a different spot, it can be very very disruptive to kind of the social not only the social norm but to just the general flow and and can cause everybody to slow down more than they might have otherwise. So those are some that come to mind immediately for me.
1: Yeah. I noticed one the other day when we were at, uh, it was the first time we've been out at a restaurant since COVID-19 shut things down. and We went out, uh, chose a restaurant specifically because they have an outdoor seating area that's what we feel comfortable with right now but i noticed as we were sitting there that there's kind of a certain social norm in terms of volume <laughs> in your conversations when you're out in places like that whether you're at a restaurant or you're in a supermarket or you know wherever obviously if you're at a sporting event more raucous behavior is totally acceptable but when you're at a restaurant if you're the loud table, people are going to start turning their heads and <laughs> checking you out. What's going on over there? <laughs> I mean, you know, obviously people are having a good time and that's great, but it is, it's, it was noticeable to me um, that there was like a certain level of, of expectation and normality to having a conversation so that your particular party could hear you, but not really any louder than that. So that's another example of what is normal in society.
0: Yeah, and keeping that kind of those social norms, just so that everybody else can also enjoy kind of the same level of conversation and so not have their conversations disrupted. Mm -hmm. Again, not that there's any laws or particular rules against those sort of things, but just the traditions and norms of behavior so that everybody else can also enjoy their dining experience or their evening out, and not be disrupted uh, adversely by you know the behavior of a couple people or a particular table or anything like that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, with all of that in mind, you know we're thinking about a society and these expectations that we have of each other and these norms that we've come to accept, um, in order to keep things kind of running smoothly. It makes you wonder, you know, when it it comes to wearing masks, that's something that we have been told is an effective way to reduce the spread of COVID-19. And yet it's, it's become a really charged subject where people feel very strongly one way or another, whether or not they think masks should be worn in public or whether or not they shouldn't be, whether they should be mandated, whether they shouldn't be. Why? have masks become such a charged issue in our society. I
0: think that's, it's really interesting. And it's been really difficult because right from the start, it seemed like such an obvious thing that wearing masks would be a good idea. Given the fact that most colds and flus and infections like this are spread through uh, coughing and sneezing and uh, airborne methods like that, that wearing some sort of facial covering would be an effective way not only to stop the spread from yourself, but also to avoid contracting it if possible. And yet, I think one of the main things that happened early on was some initial confusion and frankly misinformation from some key organizations. And so... You know, we had kind of very early on, and I think this has come to light later on, especially as we've we've had uh, particular groups admit that um, you know some of the early comments and early information that they put out uh, was not necessarily uh, correct or was meant to basically kind of keep people from buying up all of the masks. But basically, what happened was very early on uh, especially in the united states we saw that we had a shortage of masks and in order to keep most of the public from going out and buying up what we had and kind of stockpiling it we had organizations like the cdc the world health organization saying somewhat uncertainly that masks weren't going to be helpful for the general population and we later had uh, folks like Dr. Fauci, I think is how you pronounce his name. Yeah, I think
1: it's Fauci. Dr.
0: Fauci admitting that that was mainly to keep the general public from purchasing up all of those masks in order to kind of preserve them for our healthcare workers, which while that is a an adamant goal and something that we definitely needed early on, we needed to safeguard a lot of those masks and PPE for our healthcare providers, that very early misinformation has basically kind of stuck in the minds of, I think, a lot of people and has kind of caused a lot of folks to stick to the idea that masks aren't an effective way of guarding against the spread of COVID-19 and hold to that idea, regardless of any new information that's that has come out, which I think is incredibly, incredibly unfortunate. Because one, common sense kind of dictates that wearing a mask is a good idea, uh, because spreading, you know, you're going to spread it through just general breathing out, through coughing, through sneezing, and you're going to be breathing it in through people who have coughed and sneezed and uh, breathed out the virus into the air. That is how it's mainly spread, or at least one of the main ways that it spread.
1: Yeah. Early on, they were even saying that they didn't think that it was really airborne and that it was more contact, right? See, this is the problem with experts having really strong opinions on something that they're not really an expert in yet because it's so new, (laughs) but that information just wasn't available yet. Um, But they came out with some pretty strong opinions about that and uh, have since had to do an about face on it and say, actually, it is primarily airborne and masks are the best way for the general population to protect each other um, from spreading their own airborne droplets uh, into the air. It's really interesting how much misinformation was put out in the beginning. Uh, Even the U.S. Surgeon General tweeted in early March that people needed to stop buying masks and wearing them, stating that they were not effective. And then he had to go back and recant that and say that he did not have enough information early on. But now that he's seen more information, feels that they are appropriate to wear um, in public in order to reduce the spread of COVID-19. But the One of the issues in that is I think that it creates an environment of mistrust, too, um, with what we consider experts when they are switching their opinions back and forth. And I think that in addition to just hearing the wrong information right out of the gate, now when they hear the right information, maybe it's not as trustworthy because opinions have changed. If it wasn't right the first time, why would they believe it the next time? I think that's an additional issue that we're dealing here, dealing with.
0: Yeah, it really reminds me of uh, the Spanish flu in 1918. So for any of you who are familiar with kind of the history of what happened then, I'll give just a very brief account of it. Um, You know, the Spanish flu was one of the worst outbreaks of influenza in modern time, and it was absolutely devastating. Uh, And it happened at probably one of the worst possible times Uh, it was right in the middle of uh, world war one and right as the u.s was entering world war one and it wasn't it it really didn't originate in spain despite it getting the name spanish flu it actually most likely originated here in the united states and was spread all throughout the world as the u.s mobilized for world war one and as our troops uh, were preparing to go overseas, uh, you know they contracted it here in the United States, and then as they moved from base to base, spread it all around. And then as they went over to Europe, spread it all around. The main problem, though, was that nobody could talk about it um, because everybody who was involved in World War One at the time uh, put a, basically put a lid on anything that had to do with the Spanish flu because they didn't want to hurt morale within their countries. And so all press uh, were basically ordered under penalty of being imprisoned not to talk at all about the Spanish flu. So anything that you saw, uh, especially coming from health experts, was that you know we had a very good handle on it. It was on the decline. There was nothing to worry about. And that was what was coming out constantly from health experts, from the government, was that it was nothing to worry about. It, everything was fine and that uh, you know people should go about their business and that sort of thing. And so it wasn't until the Spanish flu actually got to Spain, who wasn't involved in World War I, that they, they started to actually talk very openly about it. And that's how it got its name was, you know, Spain wasn't involved. And so they felt free to talk about it. And so people started calling it the Spanish flu, thinking that it had kind of originated there when in fact it hadn't. And so this idea of misinformation, and and eventually, you know, everybody could see that it was not under control, that it was not going away, and that it was really, really devastating, far more devastating than uh, COVID nineteen has been. You know, to the to the order of uh, fifty to one hundred million dead by the end of uh, the outbreak, which is just absolutely devastating. I, I I don't even really have words to describe like the magnitude of of loss that that, that is. But you know, one of the the r- real atrocities of it was just the misinformation that happened very early on and throughout that people lost absolute trust in anything that anybody said about it, and that you know that was one of the the main lessons that came out of it that unfortunately we haven't learned and continue to uh, feel the pain over, and you know this will probably be another podcast episode things that we need to learn from Mm COVID-19 and lessons from the Spanish flu and from COVID-19 that we need to learn but that's definitely one of them is that when you put misinformation out there or at least information that you're not certain about that's going to have very long and difficult repercussions and I think that's one of the things that like you you said Kelly that we've seen here is that when you come out with something that is incorrect like masks don't work. There will be a lot of people who either hold on to that or when you come back around to say, you know, we definitely need to wear masks. This is how, you know, we get back to normal is everybody doing this thing. Then there will be a lot of people who just don't either don't know what to believe or who, you know, will hold on to the earlier information or just throw their hands up and say, you know, whatever, you don't know what you're talking about. And, you know, we end up in a situation where they are unwilling to wear masks because of, you know, the early information that was wrong or incorrect, or even, a you know, possibly attempted for the right reason to preserve masks for those who needed it most. And there's no denying that our doctors and nurses and frontline healthcare personnel needed them the most, but coming out forthrightly and saying that would have definitely been the right thing. And, you know, being very open and honest that You know, masks work, they're effective, but that's why we need them for our doctors and nurses first. And, you know, we will work as hard as we can to get them into the hands of everybody else as quickly as possible. But, you know, please help us get them into the hands of doctors as early as we can uh, while we work to get them into the hands of everybody else. would have been a far better message than no, they're not effective and you
1: don't need them. Yep. So maybe we should talk a little bit about why it is important to wear masks when you're out in public, the effectiveness of them. We now know we've had lots of studies that show solid evidence that wearing masks is effective. The CDC has put information out that says that even wearing cloth face coverings are recommended as a simple barrier to help prevent respiratory droplets from traveling into the air and onto other people. So this fabric mask, or if you're able to get disposable masks, any kind of face covering is going to cover your coughs, sneezes, but not just that. When you're talking, anytime you're breathing through your mouth, you are expelling droplets into the air. And this mask is going to help to reduce its spread into the air. That's the whole idea. And when you combine that with social distancing, the effects are dramatic. I think you have some statistics about mask wearing and how much it can help reduce the spread.
0: Yeah, according to the National Governors Association and and the New York Times, uh, you know states where uh, mask wearing is has been mandated, new cases of COVID-19 have fallen by 25%. States where it is not mandated in public, coronavirus cases have risen by 84%. And that is as of June 20th. And so we can see that simply using masks and wearing them in public is an incredibly effective way for us to both get back to normal while helping to lower the number of cases that we have of covid 19 happening and so it's it's one of the simplest ways but also one of the most effective ways for us to be really helping everybody within our society again you know we're living in a society to you know be able to effectively get out um and not you know continue in this never-ending state of of a lockdown while limiting the number of cases that we have of COVID-19 spreading.
1: Yes, and I think that this is one bit of information that has been consistent from the beginning, and it still holds true, and that is that we do not want, nor should we, overwhelm our healthcare capacity. That is the whole idea of uh, reducing the spread. It's, It's really not about prevention, though that would be great, Um, it's more about managing how many people are sick with it all at one time. And as we continue to have a rise in cases, we come closer to overwhelming our healthcare capacity, which will in effect raise mortality rates. I mean, there's just really no way around that. If you don't have enough, uh, hospital space, if you don't have enough equipment to treat people, um, in the hospitals, then you're not going to be able to save as many lives when they are in that point of of needing urgent care. And that has been something that has been a consistent message from the beginning is that we want to try to control the speed of spread of this virus so that we can make sure that when people need hospital care, they're able to get it.
0: Yeah. And I think that there's, for me, really a couple things that it comes down to as far as why we should be wearing masks and you know you you brought up really a key thing there is one limiting the spread so that we can limit the mortality and limit the strain on our healthcare system i alluded to one a second ago in basically you know starting to reopen our economy You know, we've been shut down for a long time. Mm -hmm. And that's been, I think, wearing on a lot of people. And it's been incredibly difficult for businesses, for individuals. And surprisingly, and this is one that continues to be kind of hard to wrap your head around, is that, you know, wearing a mask is a definite way to be able to both limit the spread, to limit the impact that the virus has on everybody, while also starting to reopen businesses on getting people back to work and getting people back out to their jobs and, and to, to the economy, basically. And yet it's it's such a controversial thing, um, such a s- basically small thing, but such a controversial thing. And that's something that is, it feels so difficult to like fully comprehend Like, why is this such a hard thing to do when the benefits of it are so large for so many people?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it all goes hand in hand with each other. I mean, for us to be able to sort of go back to more normal activities, um, there really just needs to be a large portion of the population understanding that we need to wear masks. That keeps us from having to shut down the economy again because we're straining our healthcare system. That's the point where the government starts to step in and say, hey, we cannot overwhelm our hospital capacity, so we're going to have to put mandates back out there for you folks because you know we're spreading it too quickly. If we want to not get to that point, wearing masks is the key. And that will allow you to be able to keep going out into the economy and and doing those activities that you need to do safely. So it is it's about saving lives, of course, and it's about um, trying to protect the people that are most vulnerable. But it's also a means to an end in terms of being able to continue to get the economy back where it needs to be. It is interesting that 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 is such a struggle for folks. And I really do think that it comes back to that misinformation that came out early on. And now just a feeling of mistrust. Um, I hope that as more information keeps coming out, that is consistent as more studies that show consistency, um, that more people will be able to see that they can trust that information and that they will do that. And in addition, this is something that our, our, uh, Local government, our governor and uh, lieutenant governor have said multiple times that wearing the mask is a sign of respect, that you care about your neighbor's well-being um, and that you're willing to give up a little bit of your personal comfort in order to um, keep your neighbors and those that you're interacting with in your community safe. Hopefully, with that consistency and information coming out, and also with this desire to you know, come together as a community to be able to work through this difficult time, we will be able to kind of get away from this whole controversial and even anger towards things being a little bit different than what used to be normal, but rather see it as an opportunity to try to get back some of that freedom and some of that economic prosperity that we were enjoying before
0: i agree with all of that and i think having it be more of a social norm than forcing it to become either part of that social contract so going to where it's enforced in some way but having it be just part of what we do out of respect and out of conscientiousness for each other because again you know we're living in a society we should act like civilized people you know pulling out that george costanza And because we care about each other, you know, I was struck uh, by one site that I saw as as we were coming out of a dance recital. This was a little while ago. Uh, We were doing our kids dance recital and the studio that we do them at uh, did an amazing job in that they did them one by one. So there were no crowds, there were no large gatherings. They put on a recital, basically for each individual student, so that just uh, parents were there watching it with the one child on stage, and you know, kind of the the teachers helping them. And it was it was an amazing thing. One of the groups that was in before us, I don't think any of them were wearing masks as they came out, and I was a little bit perplexed at that because you know it may not be a big deal for them because they are in there for two or three minutes you know, watching their child perform and then, you know, come outside and, you know, no big deal. But what a, you know, kind of a a disrespect to the teachers who are in that studio for the entire day, helping out all of the kids coming in and out. You know, I I thought it's basically saying, you know, we don't care that you're going to have to be in here all day long. And, you know, we're, Far more important than you and what you're doing for our kids. And, you know, just being able to think beyond yourself that, you know, your few minutes of discomfort isn't as important as the health and well being of everybody around you and the people who may be sacrificing a lot more than what you're doing for maybe just a few minutes, you know, whether that's uh, doing, you know, a quick shopping trip. Uh, You know, the people who are there all day in masks, making sure that they're safe and healthy. Or the teachers who are in the recital room all day long, you know, breathing that air, that they're not exposed to anything because you're, you know, you're wearing a mask. You know, it's a sign of respect. And I think that that's just as important as all of these other things that we've been talking about is respecting each other. You know we're in, we're living in a society, and part of that is the some of these traditions that we're establishing. And right now, it definitely isn't a social norm yet. But you know, as we create these social norms and social traditions, I think that we'll find they have a lot of benefits for all of us, and that not just now, but in in the future, you know, we'll be able to see the benefits and hopefully the health benefits as we get through COVID-19 and then into, you know, whatever the future might bring, you know, that this won't be such a, either a politically charged thing or a socially charged thing, but just a thing that we're able to do out of both caution and out of respect for each other.
1: Yeah. I would hope that in general, people would have the desire to take care of each other, and be willing to accept that there may be some level of, you know, discomfort that's worth going through in order to protect others. You know, our kids, they don't enjoy wearing masks when they go out, but they do it. Early on, I was pretty honest with them about this whole situation that we're in, and I told them that we don't know for sure, this was really early, really early on, We don't know for sure, there's some different information out there, but we think, and we're feeling pretty confident that wearing masks will help to reduce the spread of this virus. And I explained to them by telling them that um, the people who are most vulnerable so far that we know, um, and we're dealing with a lot of unknowns here, but that we know of are people like his, their great grandma that is in the nursing home They have multiple great-grandmas, actually. People like her and even their own grandparents, you know, that are 65 and older. I explained that their grandparents and other people's grandparents would be the most vulnerable. And I said, if wearing the mask is going to help other kids keep their grandparents, do you think it's worth it? And they looked at me with wide eyes and nodded and said, yes that is definitely worth it. And I think that if a four-year-old and a six-year-old can get it (laughs) and then they wear it and they don't complain ever since that conversation, they have not complained about it. They wear it and I think that it's something that's true when you're dealing with something that has such a level of uncertainty, err on the side of caution with your neighbors, with your community, even if it is a little uncomfortable just err on the side of caution. You know, I think that you would do that with a lot of other things to try to take care of people. It's, it's a, such a small thing. And now that we're having more consistent information coming out, and lots of studies showing that they are effective, um, even the cloth homemade ones are still quite effective in reducing the droplets that are in the air, and that this is a highly airborne virus. Um, all of that, I think it's something that I hope that people will become uh, more open to it and that this message will start to resonate inside them that um, that they do want to help take care of their neighbors, their community. And make no mistake, what you do has far-reaching impacts. This sort of thing spreads so quickly and uh, exponentially. So what you do does matter. Your individual contributions to society matters. Um, And I'm sure that a lot of those things that you do are wonderful. Let's make that one of them as well in terms of taking care of our neighbors. Let's do it. Yeah. You guys are awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Makes me think of Mr. Rogers. Won't you be my neighbor? Hmm.
0: (laughs) We'll end this discussion of social norms with one more anecdote from Seinfeld on saying bless you after sneezing. Uh, Another favorite of George Costanza. So early in the series, he and Elaine are out to dinner and they are on a double date. And uh, one of the, uh, the lady from the other couple sneezes and after waiting for a moment, uh, you know George tells her, "God bless you," because that, of course, is the you know thing the thing to say after somebody sneezes. And then he kind of jokes uh, that the husband you know didn't say it, and that of course sets him off the husband off uh, that you know he he's made a big deal of it uh, that he didn't say bless you after his wife sneezed, and um, you know he asked George that if he thinks he's special because he says, bless you after somebody sneezes. And George of course says, no, I don't think I'm special at all. In fact, my mom, my mother told me that I'm not special. So, you know, so after making a huge deal of it, George goes back to Jerry's apartment and they're conversing about this whole bless you incident. And Jerry's of course discussing it with him and they're analyzing the whole event, discussing the social norm of it, and how, you know, making sure that George, if he was in the wrong or in the right, and uh, Jerry asked him if he waited long enough between the sneeze and saying bless you in order to give the husband time, because obviously it's the husband's option to say bless you or not. George, of course, says that he believed that he gave enough gap And the the husband passed on the option to say, bless you. And so that bless you was up for grabs at that point. And at that point, uh, you know, George took the option and said, bless you. And, uh, you know, Jerry then asked the question, well, maybe she's a multiple sneezer. And, you know, the husband was holding in abeyance his bless you until the series was done. And George, of course, he thinks about that and says, no, 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 she... You know, she's a single sneezer. She sneezed later. And the husband, you know, didn't, he didn't say bless you with that one either. She's definitely a single sneezer. And so you know, that, of course, sets up a whole series of events for the entire episode uh, that, that spiral downhill for everybody, really. <laughs> <laughs> but the norm of saying bless you after somebody sneezes, another social norm that is a, is an interesting one. And of course, they talk about that, where it even came from and why we don't say something like, you're so good looking after you sneeze or or something to that effect. But we'll end this episode on (laughs) a, a fun Seinfeld reference. So thanks for listening and we will see you again next time. Yep. Thanks again for listening. If you liked our show, don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can find out more on our website, thingstothinkon.co. You can follow me on Twitter at KyleLarryEvans. You can also find Kelly on Twitter at evans. See you next time.